0: David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are here to discuss Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, not to be confused with Jane Eyre by Karen Swallow Pryor. She wrote the book about Jane Eyre, not Jane Eyre itself. Do people ever get confused about this? And the reason I ask is because people got very confused about where to find this book on the shelves in our store, as if I was supposed to, and I don't mean that, you know, as if I was supposed to shelve it under P. And not under. That is B.
2: interesting. Yeah, actually, the point of confusion on my end has, and I, I'm sure there are words we could have used to clear it up, but I don't know what they are. But people do not understand that it's the text as well. They,
0: oh, okay. You
2: know, they think it's just a guide, which I get. I, I just don't know what words we would have guide. used. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. So, and we changed the description on Amazon. So hopefully it's clearer, but mm. I still get that question all the time. And I don't know what words would have made it clearer, but um, I'm still thinking about it. But you're <laughs> right. It should be, you know, under
0: B. Ha- have you read George Saunders' new book? What is it called? A Swim in a Pond in the Moraine.
1: Yes. The rain. yes. S- yeah. I'm the- crazy about that book. I I'm- love that book. That book is so
2: George is so I mean I, I, yes yes, yes, yes.
0: <laughs> okay so I agree with all the <laughs> all the things you're saying but we've had the same problem at the store where people think they don't understand that there's actually text of stories oh. in that book now,
2: in hi- so
0: it's a little different of course yeah yeah so that one we we would shelve it under Saunders it's not in yeah, fiction okay, it's in right, non right, it's under right. books about writing essentially literary criticism but
2: yeah but with the same makes-
0: idea people don't understand that. You know, they think, oh, that's a giant book. And I explain what part of it is that there's seven Russian stories in it with different, you know, responses to them. Anyway, also another great book. We should probably do a whole episode on that book someday. But we are here to discuss Jane Eyre, and we are going to discuss chapters six through 11. Heidi, would you like to? I have not asked you to prepare this ahead of time, but could you just do a quick summary of what happened in these? these five chapters so that we can, you know, just kind of get our bearings and our listeners who maybe are reading way ahead or, or just, you know, listening, having read it years ago can just get a sense of where we are for this episode.
1: Absolutely. So uh, in the first couple of chapters that we read, we have Jane at school at Lowood and she's finding herself there, finding her place there, figuring out what is expected of her overcoming some pretty big obstacles and her fears and shames. And we'll talk about the specifics of that, I think, over the course of the of the podcast. I'm not going to give too much away on that. Uh, and then once she does establish herself, we kind of skip over several years and she talks a bit about that, which I find interesting. And then uh, we find her again at age 18, and she is established at Lowood not as a student, but as a teacher. And Miss Temple, her great mentor and a bit of a mother figure for her. Does she marry? Is that right? Mm -hmm. And- Moves away. And so Mary Jane. Yes, that's right. And so Jane decides that she wants to venture out. She starts to feel that restlessness inside of her and a desire to experience the world beyond Lowood. And so she puts out an advertisement, which I really like to say it that way because it's a British book, so I can, to be a governess <laughs> and is hired at Thornfield Hall, a place she's never heard of. And she goes off to begin a new adventure as governess for a little for a little girl named Adele. And after she arrives, that's where we end our reading. Is that right? I read a lot yeah, she,
0: ahead. Yeah, so. she arrives, but then she meets yeah. the little girl, has some conversations with her, gets a little tour of the house. And at the end of chapter 11 hears a strange laughing in the corridor, Grace which Poole. is, it's
2: claims Grace to be Poole. Grace Poole. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Which is a great name, by the way. It Grace is a great Poole. name.
0: It's There's a lot of good names in this. a lot, yes. Uh, we talked yeah. a little bit about this, including the name of the house. This is a very important question. Where in the rankings of literary houses would you say this particular house belongs, Karen? Heidi, you can... Uh, respond.
1: Karen, do you know yeah. about David's obsession with ranking? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, no, I, 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 it, yeah, I, I can see that's this.
0: It's very accusatory. It would make
2: a great lit hub piece. Yes. Maybe, maybe I'll write that, you know, great houses in British literature ranked
0: well, a, listi- a
2: listicle. Um, see, there you go. Yeah. No, I, I think this is, I can't think of any better really.
1: It's high on the list, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got along with. There's Manderley, there's Thornfield Hall, there's Green um, Gables, absolutely
0: Hogwarts. Um,
1: what's Mister Darcy's house? His name? I'm like (laughs) Pemberley. 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 Thank you, Pemberley. Pemberley. Yeah. What about the Thornfield? I oh, I mean, I would
2: live there before anywhere.
0: And is, see, that might be Mr. Rochester, though.
1: So. Oh, we haven't even met him yet.
0: Yeah. Me. True. We, well, we kind of have, they had a discussion about whether he's liked. And Miss Fairfax was sort of like, sure. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> I've never thought about it.
2: She's just all, you know, about the Fairfax.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. She's a very correct <laughs> Another uh, name. English housekeeper.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, okay. We do meet a lot of characters in these chapters, in chapters six through 11. Uh, we meet Adele, we meet. We hear about Rochester. We meet Miss Fairfax. We hear we learn more about Miss Temple. We even get to meet to re-meet. We we're reintroduced to Bessie before uh, that's her name, right? The, the the nurse, the the maid from oh, the other house that wow. mm-hmm. um, who who then she gets to spend a little bit of time with before she leaves. Uh, we get a little bit more with uh, what's his name, the mean man Brockle uh, Brocklehurst. Brocklehurst Brocklehurst yeah <laughs> yeah, and perhaps most importantly we get to know helen burns uh this is in i think chapter six and seven and um we get from the beginning we get a sense that something is wrong with her there's plenty of foreshadowing for paying attention we're gonna we kind of know what's going to happen to her she's a very important character and that seems like a good place to start well there's a we got i got a question that i'd like to toss out to you and i, I hesitated to bring this question up right away just because it it's one of those questions that's not meant to be critical but kind of forces us to be a little critical of a great author or to to question what's going on because the question is would a 14-year-old girl she's 14 I think talk with as much wisdom as Helen Burns does is that realistic? And I know that that was a question that was tossed to Charlotte Bronte at the time. This is both too realistic and not realistic enough as a book. So before we get into the kind of the the depths of this character I want to toss that out there because that was a question that was asked and, you know, we'll mm-hmm. turn to Karen. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear what you mm-hmm. think about that. Do you, do you buy that as a criticism or does it just completely work for you?
2: I mean, I think it's a good question to ask and a good criticism and and it might be a little bit unrealistic, but again, if we just, if we just consider the kinds of things that books like this tell us that kids, children that age were reading in those days. I mean, and Helen Burns is reading Rassalus, you know, a, a philosophical tale by Samuel Johnson. <laughs> and that's not unrealistic. I mean, you know, we had earlier Jane when she was 10 reading Buick's History of British Birds, basically like an encyclopedia. I mean, kids were, I guess kids were reading books in the same way that we see them today doing all these things on electronics that we don't understand, I guess, because they're spending their time doing it and we marvel at it, but Mm. I I buy it basically. I mean, it might not be entirely realistic, but these are kids, all of them who, who, I mean, Jane earlier is like talking about the books of the Bible that she reads and she's answering um, the catechism. Um, It was just not unusual for kids to be, have that kind of philosophical and theological thinking because that's what they were immersed in.
0: Would readers of Bronte's time have looked at a kid like this and thought, well, that doesn't seem realistic. No kid talks that way. I mean, even, let's just assume that no kid talked that way. Mm-hmm. Would readers of her time say, oh, no kids talk that way and that bothers me? Or is that kind of a 21st century, late 20th century way of thinking about fiction?
2: I, yeah, I've never encountered any criticism along those lines. Um, I mean, contemporary or contemporary right. criticism. So right. I'm not even sure that, it was thought unrealistic, but it, it there could be something out there.
0: Yeah. It, was, it just wasn't, it would never have entered there. We didn't mind.
2: have the, you know, extended adolescence then that we have now that goes into like 32 or whatever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> well, that, you know, one of the things that this section reminded me of is uh, Heidi, in the last episode, you talked a little bit about Charlotte Bronte's life and I read somewhere that Helen Burns is meant to be a, a doppelganger or something for the three Bronte sisters. They had a younger sister who died quite young and Helen Burns was meant to be kind of an homage to that younger sister. Karen, when you said the extended adolescence to, you know, we have something that they didn't have then, part of that was because they would die so young. I mean, That's like right. the world was just so different and all the, their Bronte sisters all died b- before they were 34.
1: Boy. Yeah. Yeah. Charlotte lived the longest out of all of them.
0: And the and and M is Emily. Mm -hmm. They would live, but they died before thirty, right? Uh It brings this character of Helen into focus, interestingly, to to look at what may have inspired Charlotte and the sisters that she had, and how they died, and the way that they interact with one another. Um, It as I was thinking about that, it was adding a lot of pathos to these scenes, and particularly the scene where she crawls into bed with dying Helen, and she finds out later that when she. Was found, her arms were around Helen's arms, and Helen was dead. And like, the, it's such a melodramatic way to describe things, and yet there's so much pathos to that. So, Heidi, when you read Helen, does the melodrama of it bother you at all? I mean, I don't know why I'm asking exactly whether these things bother me, right. but it's just an entryway into the conversation.
1: I find it very compelling. And I, I think that childhood was a very different experience in. Um, I'm so glad to hear another dog barking. The UPS. My dog was barking like crazy earlier. (laughs) We couldn't even record. Um, Childhood was a different experience in that time. It was understood differently Mm. in that time as well by adults. There was not really that sense of like a childhood should be some like carefree time spent outdoors and imaginative wonderland. And you had to be gentle with children. It wasn't like that. It was... Children should be brought into adulthood as quickly as possible and act as much as possible like little adults, especially dependent children like we have here, that are they're poor and they're there on they're there on charity, and that would have they they would have been held to a very different kind of standard than than a wealthy kind of child that we and we we see that in the novel, and that would have been typical. So the idea of children reading. You know, far beyond their years, and uh, what we would expect at least for their years now, and and for children to be expected to to present adult like qualities and adult like virtues, I mean that was just common back then. So Helen Burns is a remarkable character. Uh, I mean, an incredibly stoic character. We've mentioned that before. She shows all the stoic virtues and acceptance of her fate, a desire to overcome her faults, a willingness to submit to authority and to submit to correction. Um, sorry, Sorry, the UPS man is here. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, so it could be an any The response
0: moment. seems appropriate. <laughs> yes.
1: I get really excited when the UPS guy shows up too. Anyway, that Helen Burns would have been acceptable for her time. That would have been part of what would have been expected for a, a child in her position to act like. And then she also provides something really important to Jane. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Karen. Like what what does she do for Jane here in this section? Okay, just drop the box. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right.
2: Um, Well, this is—I mean, this Helen Burns is such an important character and an important plot feature. I think um, in either in the introduction or somewhere in the questions, I don't remember where I address this in um, this volume. But um, Helen represents one of Jane's first great temptations. The temptations throughout. The novel being the temptation to be someone other than herself. Helen is a, a real friend to Jane. Jane loves Helen. Um, she admires Helen. She learns from Helen. She she doesn't understand how Helen can can meet suffering and injustice with this stoicism. And it's presented. I, this is this is one of the things that I love most about Bronte's art, is that Helen is an admirable but flawed character you know there is something admirable about her stoicism yet at the same time there's something lacking in it too like who yeah something annoying sad? yes <laughs> I wouldn't even go that far, but yes, I guess so. I don't know. I just, I just um, terribly tragic for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, and and so Jane Jane is attracted to Helen in a spiritual friendship way, in a in an emotional way, mm-hmm. and in a in a way of like, is this how I'm supposed to be as a Christian? Because Helen is, you know, she. She is a christian stoic, and she she couches her her beliefs and her philosophy in in the Bible and she's also you know she's surviving Lowood in a way that is somewhat admirable. I mean if just to survive is admirable, these conditions is admirable. Yet there's still mm. something, you know, unsatisfying or annoying as, as you said David. <laughs> and and Jane has to figure that out. She has to figure out what it means to love and admire someone and not feel the need to be like that person.
0: Mm. In what ways do you think she she needs to understand not to be like to be like Helen. Like what is the what are the aspects of Helen that she the, the stoicism well, is virtue, right? But is yeah, it the degree well, of stoicism?
2: Well, going going back to what we said last week, Jane Eyre's sort of predominant uh, personality quality is her passion. Mm. So in that sense, she is the opposite of Helen. She's right. very passionate. So for right. her to try to be like Helen, to be stoical would be to deny her essential nature and to repress it in a way that would would just be wrong.
1: It would be unhealthy and it would be wrong. I agree. I think what Helen also offers for Jane, and I mean, keeping in mind for our listeners that this is a gothic novel and gothic novels are novels of extremes, right? You have extreme situations, you have extreme characters, and and it was also a different time. So, one thing that Helen does for Jane is give her an ideal a stoic ideal to strive for, right? Because Jane is so passionate, which we talked about last week. Like she is she is very ruled by her emotions and her past experiences. And so Helen gives her an ideal to strive towards to to become more accepting, to become to rule herself better. Well, and she needs that to order herself better. And I think the other I think their relationship is reciprocal as well. I think you mentioned that. That what Jane then I think offers to Helen is an entryway into the heart. And someone to truly love her and to long for her company in a place where, where Helen is continually criticized by teachers who don't like her. And so there's, their, their friendship is nourishing for both of them. And because they're orphans, they're in a sense parenting each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the pathos comes in, that they're they're ill-equipped for this thing that they have to offer to each other. And then somehow they're able to still do it because they're so different. And I think mm-hmm. that's really sweet and precious.
2: Yeah, it, it's a picture of virtue because they are moderating yes. one another through their extreme qualities, and and I yeah, it it, it is pathos and it is tragic, but it's, it's sweet. And I, you know, we talked last week about how both Heidi and I don't really remember the first time we read this novel. It's just there, and one of the scenes for me that is just a scene that just seems like it's always been there is that you know is the death scene and it doesn't strike i mean maybe it's because i did read this first when i was younger much younger and so the the melodrama didn't didn't hit me as as melodrama as much as melodrama yeah. as it would now but that that scene just breaks my heart it feels very realistic and sad mm. and mm-hmm. and i do i think it it is melodramatic it is gothic but probably a lot of kids were dying in each other's arms in right. those days especially in a school like that
0: yeah. And I, and I use the term melodramatic, but I don't really mean it in a negative sense. Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, so one of the, you got, you both mentioned well, Karen, especially you mentioned the idea of Jane has a specific nature and if she's too much like Helen, that would be unhealthy for her. So it's interesting to me that their relationship blossoms begins and then blossoms right after Brocklehurst's visit, because he spends a lot of time talking about nature it's in chapter mm-hmm. seven because there's the bit where the girl has the red hair mm-hmm. and her hair is, and then the, the, he really cracks down on any kind of it's
1: curly Yeah. So curly hair. Their heads. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and any kind of, you know, any kind of, uh, showing off via, you know, via hair is just not going to cut it for him.
1: <laughs> via hair, <laughs> Showing <laughs> off via hair. I think I do that a lot.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: Well, you've just made me think of
2: something that I didn't think of before. Can I say this now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, ad- I do address this in more philosophical terms. Again, in one of the questions, this whole, right, that Brocklehurst – thinks that nature, especially human nature and especially feminine nature, is something to be subdued and tamed, yeah. like curly yeah. hair. But, you know, a complaint that we're all hearing more and more these days and really do have to think about is, you know, is how the the canon of classics is primarily, you know, dominated by white people. and. You know that th- there is an issue of race that emerges later that you know I won't mention here. Um, but you know my argument all along is always that you know what makes these classic works of literature great is that they they do address universal themes. I mean they aren't they don't comprehensively address everything that's of every concern to every person everywhere, but they still <laughs> address things that are comprehensive and. And so I'm just thinking now about, you know, obviously this red curly hair is the hair of a white girl in this story, yet, you know, the issue of of Black women's hair, which is very much in our culture today and part of contentious discourse in terms of how it is, you know, has to be sort of homogenized in workspaces and other places. I mean, this is an example of how this work, even though it's centered in a very particular time and place and population, still addresses things that we're, we're grappling with today. Like, hmm. should a woman with naturally curly hair tame it for the sake of some artificial, you know, cultural or Christian principle? And this story says, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, he says, right. why in defiance of every precept and principle of this house does she conform to the world so openly here in an evangelical charitable establishment as to wear her hair one mass of curls... The way he expresses himself is sort of humorous. It, it's so bleak, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so rotten that you almost, you can't help but laugh at it. But then what's in, in the next paragraph, he talks about the idea of, he says, we are not, Miss um, Temple says, Julia's hairs curl naturally. There's not a lot we can do about it. And then he says, naturally, yes, but we are not to conform to nature. I wish these girls to be the children of grace. And... So it's interesting the way he puts grace and nature in opposition to one another. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. given that we have Brocklehurst on one side saying that grace and nature are in opposition to one another is Helen, does she run counter to that? Does she are there, or is there a character that in, in some way is showing that there's a connection between nature and grace as opposed to them being these opposition in opposition?
2: Well, I think it's Miss Temple, the church, right? She's the, she's the church the way the church should be. She is is, you know, even her name, um she she represents the true true Christianity, the true church as opposed to Brocklehurst, uh, which you know, it the church can. And that's a, you know, nature and grace is pitted against one another is an age-old kind of theme sure. um and does continue, but but properly understood, it is the church, it is Christianity that can bring them into harmony with one
0: another. I love how Bronte gives us immediately after this scene like He uh, he goes in this speech about nature, please cut off the hair and everything, and then tell the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall. And then it says, Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. So she immediately... What, what do you make of that little bit there in response to his... First of all, what is she smiling at? But I love... She's the one that we get next in the book. We don't get Jane's perspective. We don't get Helen. We get Miss Temple's, has a physical response, and then she has to carry out his orders. But Bronte gives us her next after Brocklehurst gives his speech, which, again, it goes to the artfulness. She's always directing us exactly where she wants to direct us. It feels so... We feel so... We're in the hands of a capable artist. You know, you don't feel like you're dragged all over the place. Everything means something. But I am curious, what do you think she's smiling out there? What, how, do you, how do you read that? She puts a handkerchief over her lips like she's trying to not laugh at a child who's in trouble. But here, she's the one that's in trouble.
1: I think she's laughing at how ridiculous Mr. Brocklehurst is being. To, but she so- can't show that to the kids. Exactly. And then she finds ways to communicate grace and acceptance and love to these girls when her boss isn't around because she has to. I mean, there's, to to Karen's point, this this whole section is examining, like just incisively examining multiple levels of injustice and uh, inequality within this British hierarchy and this system here, right? Because Miss Temple, who... Our representation of the church, right? Her with with true spiritual and intellectual and psychological leadership, she silenced here in the in the presence of Mister Brocklehurst, this man with power yeah, who comes good. in and just makes these incredibly ridiculous, irrational demands and couches them in spiritually abusive language. And Miss Temple has to figure out then what to do, but she can't intervene publicly. And in, in a culture like this. And so she has to find ways to do this really kind of counter-culturally. So she's the boss, but she's not the boss boss, right? And she has to submit to this man or lose her job and lose any influence that she yeah. could potentially have of true grace to these girls. And I like the fact that she smiles instead of looking indignant. Like she doesn't even take this seriously. Like it's so ridiculous and irrational that- That tells her, us how to feel like about it. Meaningless. But to a child like Jane, right? Like she is-
0: She's it's the end of the world she for her. She doesn't
1: have the ability to see any irony or humor or ridiculousness in this situation at the time. Developmentally, she's incapable. Of that all she sees is one injustice and two shame—the experience mm. of shame. I really do love that Charlotte Bronte gives us a Miss Temple, like this, uh, this kind of thread of grace uh, that goes throughout Jane's childhood and is able to lead her in, in even in the such horrific circumstances. Mm.
2: And again, I just noticed
1: this for the first time,
2: too, um, because you read it, David. Um, we're talking about the, you know, Brocklehurst's um, indignation at the the hair curling, and yet the way that Bronte describes Miss Temple's smile is the curl of the mm. lips, you know? Mm. Like, wow, you know, a nice little echo or refrain there.
0: I'm going to need a second because I need to write in my margins. <laughs> Are you, are you a margin writer? Like it, are you offended if someone writes in the book that you produced?
2: No, I'm writing in my, no, no, I'm, I'm offended if people don't write. in it.
0: <laughs> I, I have some friends and in the book world who who like, they write on notepads and stuff and there's just paper all throughout their books, but I would just lose all those papers. Right, right, so, right. This is the kind of passage that you just, as I said, you just feel it's one page and so much happens. And so many themes are revealed mm-hmm. and we look at so much characterization. And again, it's a, a master at work. It's too, this is kind of an understatement, but it's too bad we didn't get more. We didn't get two more decades of
1: I know. Of mm-hmm. Charlotte
0: that Bronte producing work. Because how much better would she have gotten with more experience? Um, and
1: Emily too, man, all the novels Emily could have written, but that's a different
0: conversation. Were you going to say something else though about Helen, Karen? Um... Before we went off on the temple train, oh, just
2: her name—that was the other. Um, you know, it's Helen Burns. Um, I think there's actually a term for that, like when your name is, you know, a noun and a verb or something like that. But so, what does the Burns mean? Could it mean? I mean, I think I think this is what I love about Bronte's—the names she uses—is because they are suggestive, pretty clearly of some things, but also I think mm. more subtly suggestive of, of other things. So, you know, Helen, she she burns with like a fever and her death. Mm -hmm. She burns. She doesn't burn with passion. Yeah, We've already made that clear. Yet I think in a way, you know, when you shovel down your feelings and emotions too long, too far, I mean, to be stoic, they are probably kind of burning and simmering inside you because you're not letting them out. And so that's another suggestion I think of with her name.
0: When I was reading it, two things came to mind that I'd I'd like to know what you think. One, could there be, I mean, is there any kind of is, it, is there a martyr illusion there? Like, you know...
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think she, so. She's she, a, mm-hmm.
0: she allows herself to be flogged in a way. Yes. Um, and it, could there be any That's Helen really of... Af- inversion of a yeah, Helen of is. Troy thing or something like that? I don't know. It just I also could be a... Native. That's what I was... Mm. It's the most obvious. The first thing I thought, oh, Helen, it's great literature... Obviously had read the ancients, the classics. I was trying to figure out if there was any connection. So
2: I like the martyr one better. That's really actually pretty right. insightful. That
0: one I feel like I was making a case for. This one I'm just asking about.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. It's
0: probably, probably not. a
2: pretty common name, you know.
0: Yeah, that's true. There probably were a fair number of Helens in was it eighteen forty seven.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But Brocklehurst versus Miss Temple, that's a great those are great names to mm-hmm. uh to pit against each other.
2: Oh, one little um, interesting on page 153, the end of chapter nine, after when she dies. And I never really noticed this before either, but this is again, sort of the, um, the sophistication of, of the narration talking about Helen's grave. Her grave is in Brocklebridge churchyard for 15 years after her death. It was only covered by a grassy mound, but now a gray marble tablet marks the spot inscribed with her name and the word, I think that's how you say it, which means I will I shall rise again. But that
1: little word now, now, what do you think that means? <laughs> I mean, I would assume it means that Jane is responsible yeah, for this. Yeah, for this marker. <laughs> yeah. Have you
0: heard the yeah. story of Charlotte Bronte's sister's gravestone? No. Oh, which one was it? One of the two had tuberculosis, I think. And they, both, they all they did. did. Someone told her she should go somewhere because the weather would help her so charlotte Charlotte had said no that's a bad idea and then then they said the doctor said no it's probably okay so then they went there and then the sister died while there and told her should we just go home so it's easier after the fact and charlotte said don't worry about it don't even worry about that but they buried her where she in the place where she had died and she then ordered a gravestone to be put there and the gravestone was all wrong there was a bunch of errors in it. There was a bunch of typos.
1: Typos. You can see it still. It's Anne's. It's Anne's grave. Anne's, she was okay. buried in Scarborough.
0: And years later, Carla then they went would back. Send people in Yorkshire when they mm-hmm. and made a new one. Like had had it redone. I think since then they've also had to redo it again. But so hmm. that that is a hmm. very particular detail that might be hmm. directly from experience. It's very For specific. Own, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Which reminds me just a little personal note is that I was, you know, as writing, I was doing this last summer and COVID was already here. And I just mm-hmm. remember part of my research was to just f- better understand what tuberculosis was. And I think I've got a, a note in here and just how they didn't understand what it was or how it spread. And, you know, yeah. and so many people died from it. And I just thought, you know, we think we're, we've are we progressed so far and we have in some ways, but, um, you know, we, it's, People will look back at this period in our history and, and yeah. look at us the way we look at them with their tuberculosis. Like, it's yeah. True. yeah.
0: It, it, when people talk about the science, I mean, I'm all for trusting the science, but also in 200 years, people are going <laughs> to say that the science, I mean, someone came into our bookstore yesterday and was talking about how back in the day they bled George Washington. They thought it was going to mm-hmm. heal. It, and every mm-hmm. medical person that you would talk to agreed that this was the way you did it. That's um, right. So in 200 years, people will look at us as fools too. Um,
1: (laughs) They bled Marianne in uh, Sense and Sensibility too. That's just what they did.
0: That's true. One question that I want to bring up here is, it seems like a good time. We don't have too much time left and I want to make sure we cover this. Here at the beginning of chapter 10, Heidi, you mentioned this earlier, I believe. She skips a bunch of years. (laughs) Um, She goes from age 10 to age 18 and, you know, she gets a little bit, of, little bit meta at the beginning of chapter 10 and says, I'm going to have to skip ahead now. Sorry. <laughs> I am bound to invoke memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Therefore, I now pass a space of eight years, almost in silence. A few lines only are necessary to keep up the links of connection. And then she gives us those few lines to keep up the links of connection. The simple question is, why does she do this? I mean... The book can only be so long. That's probably the most obvious answer. But what is the effect on the narrative, mm-hmm. and for us as readers, of of doing this? As particularly, we talked about how it's a building's Roman, and so it's about how she comes of age, how she becomes becomes herself. But then we get this huge space where we don't really get to experience her continued growth during that period. So, H- Heidi, what were you going to say?
1: Yeah, I I I think a couple things. One is it does. I mean, she tells us even that I'm only bound to invoke a memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Um, and so this is going to be boring. Yeah. She also <laughs> specifically says she's choosing things that matter, kind of to her in her becoming, right? Which that would be our narrator Jane, but our author Charlotte is also active here, um, and she, I, I, I really like that she does this because for. A very specific reason, there's probably lots and lots of reasons, but one I really like is that one thing that we already know about Jane is that she holds... Grudges, right, as a child. She was a child who <laughs> who was wounded easily and then kind of held onto that wound and it fed that passion inside her. And we know that there was, she she was angry and resentful of Aunt Reed, and she demands, you know, she's kind of very self-indulgently demands sympathy from Helen, and Helen rebukes her for it and corrects her in a very gentle and loving way. And I think in this particular section, we get to see. The fruit of that in Jane, because what happens after Helen's death uh, and after this plague that goes through the school, the corruption at the school is uncovered and dealt with. There's public outrage about them starving the girls and and letting them be cold and and kind of leading to this plague. And um, because of that. Things are changed and things get better and Brocklehurst is removed and all the, you know, there's, there's reforms that are done at the school. And you would think that to a angry kind of vindictive child, that this would be a big moment of triumph that you would, you know, record meticulously. You can see Brocklehurst getting his comeuppance and that that would be the next big thing. But instead of that. Could have been its own novel. Exactly. But that's not what we have. What we have is Jane saying, well, then this thing happened. She skips over it as if it's not of any account, as if it wasn't some big triumph in her life. And then we move on. And part of that, I think, is because we do kind of need to get to the next thing as as the author. But I think it does, what I like about it personally, my personal response to that is, oh, like, Jane has, she took those lessons to heart. And and then the next big thing that happens in her life is going to Thornfield, not getting rid of Brocklehurst and having this like moment of triumph. And I, I just like that. I find that satisfying.
0: Turns out it's not a novel of like social justice. It's not a
1: revenge novel. It's not a social justice. I mean, there's social justice commentary. The Quentin
0: Tarantino version yes, would be those it's years. it's
1: not Dickens, <laughs> right? Like, so there's, um, which... Brocklehurst is a bit Dickensian isn't he? And you could have had this big moment of overthrow and made it a thing, but it wasn't. That's that's not the thing that was nourishing to her soul. And I I just I personally just like that a
0: lot. Mm. Go ahead, Karen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it
2: reinforces what this novel really is about after sort of just quickly going over what happened to brocklehurst and the new school on page 154 she says during these eight years my life was uniform but not unhappy because it was not inactive so this is about Mm. the development of her soul and she the state of her soul and her character and her personality doesn't depend it's affected by the cruelty and injustice of others but it's not you know it doesn't depend on what happens to mr brocklehurst like heidi said
0: what does it say about me? And I may need you to put on your counselor hats now. But what does it say about me that I really wanted to have more time watching Brocklehurst squirm? I wanted to hear the. I wanted to see him in front of the the tribunal. Jane Eyre, fan fiction, David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean I agree with what you're saying. But I remember yes. reading it when I just read it this time. I had forgotten how quickly we get past Brocklehurst. Like his comeuppance really isn't much of a comeuppance because. Even when she asks for a letter, she has to go through him. He's still involved in the school, which, you know, some things never change, right? But there's a degree to which I, as a reader, wanted, for her sake, him to be humiliated the way he humiliated her. So is the fact that Charlotte Bronte keeps that from us, do you think that that's strategic in terms of the position that it puts us in as a reader? I don't... Again, it's, this is kind of a meta question. It's... I don't... How, she probably didn't write a letter about this. We don't know. But for me... I, changes my posture going into the next part of the novel. I, I, at least that's what I recognized in myself. I mean, do you feel that way or, or am I, is this just purely, you know, me needing to be vindictive and needing some <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: I think it, it does show that for Jane, she's an introspective person. We know that. And she's writing about her childhood from the perspective of an adult. So the high point of her childhood is not that the bad guy got his comeuppance, right? Uh, she's instead looking at the story of her life, as a series of personal overcomings. And that is what maybe one of my favorite things about Jane that even though she has a temptation towards um, kind of that, a negative form of introspection, kind of getting lost in her own passions, instead of that, we know that through the eyes of an adult, it's not some big high point in her life that Brocklehurst gets that come up in. So it really is that she's looking back thinking, I was I, I I really love and I'm gonna give an example of, of what I'm about to say before I say it. When she stands up, when Brocklehurst shames her in front of the school and she has to stand there and he tells everybody that she's a daughter of Satan and a liar, right? What she she goes into that with this, I can't find the quote anymore, but she calls it crossing the Rubicon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh here There's yes. a
0: note on that page from Karen, yes. so just look it's for the page note.
1: 127. <laughs> he says I'll read the paragraph before, uh, which is just one of the things he says about her. You see, she is yet young. You observe she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No signal deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant, an agent in her, yet such grieve to say... Is the case?
0: That she's possessed is basically what he's saying.
1: Yeah, he says she's a servant of the devil, right? You can't tell by the outside, and then which is exactly her biggest fear about herself. This is the thing. You know, I can't help but read this like a psychologist, right? If I was sitting there with count and counseling with this adult version of this,
0: yeah, child you had a lot of afraid,
1: training. Like she's afraid that Aunt Reed dislikes her because there's something wrong with her. Mm. Right? When an adult corrects a child, the child doesn't blame the adult. They blame themselves. That's why we have to be so careful with children. Right? So, and then this is everything that she's most afraid of. And this is her response. And this is after her conversation with Helen Burns, who has already been formational to her. And she says, a pause in which I began to steady the palsy of my nerves and to feel that the Rubicon was passed and that the trial, no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. Hmm. This I love about Jane because this stays true about her, her entire life from this moment forward, right? Like she she has this vivid imagination that imagines these things that happen to her. And then when they happen, she rises to them And her response isn't this bad man who must be overthrown. Her response is, I am in a trial that I cannot shirk. And so I think that is why Brocklehurst's downfall is not a moment of triumph for her, but just a thing that happens in Hmm. the development of her selfhood.
0: I love that you pointed out the word Rubicon here, because you could read that in multiple ways. On the one hand, he has crossed a Rubicon that he can't, Hmm. you can't, take back what he has said about her in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. And yet maybe to your point, she has now made a decision mm-hmm. after which to she, endure. she yeah. and and from now on, she's going to be different. There's not going to be, a, you don't go back to the time before you have made that decision. She's learned from Helen and is now a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that word is, there's a double meaning to that word there. Again, Charlotte Bronte, it turns out she's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I know. Right.
2: There was a, um, a man on Twitter, a in the past week, I don't remember if he would was thread about the podcast. That's a, of that's FD FD a phrase that you always I mean, <laughs> want to begin
0: a sentence with. <laughs> i
2: mean, on Twitter, i mean on Twitter, <laughs> but no, he, um, apparently, you know, his, his, uh, his, his, His baby's middle name is Jane after Jane Austen and Jane Eyre and Lady Jane Grey. And he Hmm. just said that he was uh, reading Jane Eyre for the first time. You know, it was his his wife's favorite book. And he Hmm. could not believe that he, you know, how much he loved it and how he had waited. It was nothing like what he expected. And all those all those things that I'm hearing come out of David right now. It makes me so happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that part of it was, this is close reads. We want to read the book closely. We don't want to just talk about our feelings about it, (laughs) but it's hard to get away from the responses that you have as you read something. And I think in many ways, I wasn't prepared to receive parts of it, you know, and when I'm reading it in the classroom and you read it over three weeks and you hear lecture about it, it's a different experience as well. And I read it again later, but I think I just kind of read it out of like, Oh, this is, I need to try this again. Like this as is a, a
1: classic a- novel, I got to read yes, this book. Yeah, yeah
0: but I'm definitely, I think I'm in a position in my life now where for whatever reason, there's things about it that I'm more prepared well, to hear. You're surrounded the by receive. these
1: women who are like, hey, we have <laughs> yeah. like, hey this is, but yeah. you, you made that, so. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things I am interested in, though, I'm, I don't want to just talk about feelings, but I'm fascinated by... <laughs> they both gave me faces like <laughs> um but i am fascinated by the way great authors like position a story for a response because when an author crafts a scene they're they're asking for a degree of pathos or for you to respond in anger that's what they're doing you you can't and so to know how you respond to something i think is is it's good to know how you're responding to something That to be sort of self-aware about that because it helps you... If you're not self-aware of how you're responding, you can't step away from the way you're responding and try to look at what you're reading very clearly. So do you both, when you read the Brocklehurst stuff and these injustices that come up to her, have you read the novel enough now that you can distance yourself from sort of wanting to be angry? I think I've been thinking a lot about Anne of Green Gables when I read this book because Anne has that fiery, you know, she wants justice all the time, right? In a similar way to Young Jane does, but the books don't necessarily move on from that that sense the way it does here. So, how have you read it enough that you can just separate that? You don't need like you are with her that and Helen. You know she just has to endure it as a martyr, or do you still find yourself? Rooting for people like Brocklehurst to be taken down. I'm just curious how that experience has evolved, Karen. How do you feel about that? And if you just think, if you want to tell me this is a dumb question, then
2: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think I think to tie together this question and what you were just saying about how we can't ignore our responses because when we're when we're in. You know, when we're in the room with a great artist, that artist is inviting us to do something. And they're inviting us to to hear, to listen, to laugh, to scorn, to mock. I mean, all these different modes. They are inviting us and we have to sort of understand what the invitation is Mm. and respond accordingly. And so... No, I think I. I think I, when I read this each time, I'm kind of brought right back into, into the room, into the scene. But it is, you know, it is different. It's been a while since I have read Anne of Green Gables, but I don't think that's that's not a mature Anne looking back, right? No, it's true, in, true, right. And so right. that's that's the other. You know, we talked about this last time, but but a good... that's a different invitation to come with this older Jane, hearing her tell her story. More reflectively and more maturely, we're in in many of these moments, but she often reminds us that she's also reflecting on this at a later time in life and seeing it through different eyes.
0: Heidi, we just read Rebecca, and it's got a similar thing going on there, a similar conceit. We've got an older narrator looking back at her life, and you know we've had some questions about c- comparing in the two books. Karen, you said you haven't read Rebecca, right? Right. Okay, so. I guess you're excluded from this question, um, but if you'd like <laughs> to try to answer, you can. Um, how do you see similarities between these older n- narrators who are wiser looking back at their younger selves? What, how do you compare and contrast Rebecca, and the, our, our unnamed narrator mm-hmm. and Rebecca versus older wiser Jane?
1: Yeah. So just in terms of novel quality, Jane airs a 10 out of 10 and Rebecca does not, is not even in the same league. However, you're right. There's a very similar t- a conceit. The older, wiser narrators are two very different people. And Rebecca, our narrator, is not looking back from a place of settled virtue. The virtue mm. development is not even a question in Rebecca. Happiness development is the concern Mm. of Mm. Rebecca's narrator. Am I going to get to be happy with Maxim? Are we going to figure this out? Are we going to figure out our marriage? Does he love me or does he love Rebecca? Still, that's the question. Jane is wrestling with, I think, much more profound questions. Uh, Identity, selfhood, virtue. Love is certainly a question, although we're not even to the love story yet. And I think that's why we needed such- There's, um, whoops, spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, Uh, the questions and the, the issues, the position and posture of our mature Jane is much deeper than the love of her life. Mm. And, um, that's not true in Rebecca. And that I think is why Mm. one of the reasons why just one of the reasons why Jane Eyre is the greatest novel in the Gothic genre. For sure, and one of the greatest. I novels thought you were going to say the greatest language. novel I've ever
0: written. There for a second. Well, it's
1: one of the greatest novels I've ever written, and it's it's one of the greatest novels in like world history. And it's because it's so much more than just the love story, and we're not mm. even there yet. So, yeah, and that, I mean, I guess that's just okay. Name. So now I
2: want to say something. I want to I want to preserve this moment in history, in the history of this podcast. It's- <laughs> These, these words Luckily, we are recording <laughs> okay <laughs> good thing somebody pressed that button but the words that Heidi just said and I'm not going to give a spoiler but I do want to say that the you know the way the novel ends some people find unsatisfactory um for reasons but what Heidi you mean just,
0: unsatisfying
2: unsatisfying yes. yes because
0: when I hear unsatisfactory I hear people
2: we'll get that yeah, yeah. Okay, oh okay. like like yeah they don't they don't like...
0: personally like it Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: But I want to say what Heidi just said about Jane and what it's really about and about more than just, you know, her love relationship. That's why the ending works so Mm -hmm. well. Agreed. Mm. Okay, good.
0: I think a lot of people have read most read of the yeah, books yeah, so yeah, we're yeah, probably yeah, fairly yeah, safe yeah, or yeah. either like me and it's just been a while.
1: Right. And they're a little yeah. th-
0: little gray on some of this stuff.
1: Well, yeah. like I mean hum- human love, romantic love such a big deal. It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet which we're talking about on The Plays the Thing podcast that the love story is so powerful that it 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 can overwhelm for some people the bigger issues of mm-hmm. the play and the play is about so much more.
0: Well, the, the romance, romance and Romeo and Juliet, and Juliet overwhelming things is that's Yes. Kind of
1: point. But, well, kind yes. Good point. Yes. They have an overwhelming love. Um, But there's so much more to the story. It's addressing so many more issues of what it means to be human. And that's the same in Jane Eyre. And that's not the case in Rebecca. Rebecca's a good book. Rebecca's a really good novel. It transcends the gothic genre. it's It's a very fun book. It belongs on all of the lists and all of the things. But Jane Eyre is so much better for the reasons, and some other reasons too, that we just can't get to without spoilers.
0: So, Karen... When I said I thought you were gonna, uh, when I said that I thought Heidi was gonna say the greatest novel ever written, you kind of gave a a face like could be. So can I put (laughs) you on the spot? You're you're doing six novels in your series, right? Frankenstein, right? This one, Tess, right? Scarlet Letter, Sense and Sensibility, and Heart of Darkness, right? Those are the six. Mm -hmm. Is do you think this is the greatest of those six? Absolutely. Yeah. Like there's a big gap.
2: No, I guess what I would say is that Jane Eyre is the greatest or you know, one of the greatest novels. So there are lots of great works of literature, but Jane Eyre is so good at being a novel and doing what a novel mm. is supposed to do and mm. can and should do. And it's just it's it's the quintessential novel. Maybe that's the best way to put it.
0: What what else would you I mean, this is not really too deep into this book, obviously, mm-hmm. but what other books would you put up there as far as novels up there in terms of doing what the novel is supposed mm-hmm. to do?
2: I mean, Jane, Jane Eyre is so singular, singular in its focus and its voice. And then mm. there are other great novels that do something else, which is to do have more of, you know, a plurality of voices and characters. And and that's mm. something that a novel does well. I don't think it does it well until it deals with the individual the way that Jane Eyre does. And then it can kind of go on and deal with more individuals. So, mm. um,
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: Would you consider the Austen books like the best Austen books to be a tier below?
2: I mean, they are more comedies of manners, so which in novel, you know, so novels of manners, and I think they're, I think they're, they're excellent, but they're a precursor to. I mean, they are novels, but um, yeah. I mean, I love Jane Austen. I mean, she's in a category by herself. But as far as like what the novel developed to do, as the expression of modernity, Mm. which Mm. is what I think novels are. Then I I don't think you can. So much has no, than Jane
0: nothing Eyre. else has reached the heights of Jane Eyre as far as that.
2: I think every I think Jane Eyre made others possible. I guess. Mm. Um, and That's I don't fine. know. I guess I feel so limited because there are because my specialty is British literature. So the, yeah, yeah. so I you know I've read some American literature and I've read Russian, but I, I just I'm not as I don't have as much expertise. So I don't want to make a too great with yeah, all and the, these other and a claim. and Russian,
0: Russian novels are doing different things they're even yeah. formally different than,
2: yeah yeah than
0: a lot of the english yeah. heidi and i don't claim to be scholars on this podcast so we have a scholar on so we can ask questions like this <laughs>
2: but my but my People expertise seriously. Is so, it's so limited though and you know.
0: <laughs> i guess that's i mean you can't be an expert on everything No. Yeah. well we only have a couple minutes here so let's Let's do some final thoughts and then we'll move on to the next section. And I believe we're doing 11 through, we did six through 11. So I think 12 through 16 is our next section. Um, Heidi, would you like to go first on final thoughts? And Yeah, I
1: do. Today is Charlotte Bronte's birthday, March 31st. What? Happy birthday. Wow. Yeah. It's appropriate. the Bronte Museum is closed today, sadly. There's like posts all over oh, Facebook on all the because you know, of COVID. Yes, yeah. year in Tuberculosis a row, is terribly going around. Sad. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but happy birthday to Charlotte Bronte, one of the greatest novelists ever.
0: This was definitely on purpose. We definitely did this book over her birthday on purpose.
2: I'm so bad Totes. about birthdays. I'm I don't even remember my family's birthdays, so don't.
0: Yeah, how are you supposed to remember your? I know, I know. I should. And we can't look at Facebook. It's not like Charlotte Bronte's got a Facebook account that tells us that her birthday's tomorrow.
2: There might be that's one. True. Somebody.
0: Yeah. That, like, well, that's well, true. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. Real yeah. Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Carrie, what Some about guy you? on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> final thoughts for you karen Um, just
2: i i we've talked about this a little bit before but chapter 11 the last part for this segment does it does have that meta narrative Uh, a new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play um again i think this is something to draw people's attention to that that this is a an artful device and it's something to 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 go with it's part of the effect of the novel and even when she addresses the reader i mean a lot of writers did at this time, but that just reminds us of who's speaking, you know, that she's, that she's looking back. And I think that's just a nice, I I like that transition because as we said before, the novel does jump around some because it's not, you know, it's not an encyclopedic account of of Jane's life, but she, she's guiding us through, she's in the act of interpreting her life and helping us to do the same.
0: Mm. We didn't talk a lot about Chapter Eleven, in part because we only had a limited amount of time, we need to talk about Helen and, and so forth. But we are going to get to talk extensively about Thornfield and Miss Fairfax and Adele, and the other characters that and are Grace coming Poole. up. So, Grace Pool, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's all these characters that we're going to spend more time with, and, and especially the house that we're going to spend more time with that we'll get to, to get to discuss that. So if you're feeling like they didn't talk about all this stuff enough, don't worry. We're going to talk about it. That's enough. Yeah. Listen next week. Anything else from either of you besides a hearty happy birthday to Charlotte Bronte? I How have do, would like, you like 50 to say
1: things in my head, but I'm not going to say them. So,
0: let like me say gonna... one.
1: Okay, so one of <laughs> yeah. them is that this whole and I, I mentioned it last week, this whole thing about Jane's continual desire for Jane Eyre is my perfect novel uh, on my that addresses oh, my duty underlying desire. Yeah. duty desire um, obsession. Uh, interpretive obsession. So because I believe, I believe that every great work of literature is just an examination of the underlying human pilgrimage to unite duty and desire. What ought I to do? What do I want to do? How can those things ever be reconciled? And Jane Eyre is one long examination of that question from the standpoint of a virtuous woman. And
0: you should write a book about this. It sounds like
1: maybe I should. And <laughs> I just really hope that Josh Gibbs is right. And we will meet literary characters in heaven. And I just <laughs> want to be eternal friends with this woman. Um so, so she's such a comfort to me because I am continually stuck in that. I am I am continually stuck in that conflict between duty and desire. And I've never ever felt free from that. And Jane is like that. She's a different kind of person than I am, but she is like that. Mm. And um and she continually chooses the right, and I just love that about her. Even though it's hard, and it's always hard on her, and it costs her something. And so I like aspire to be like her. And um, she's this this section. I think we see her childhood and in, in what we just read, and now we get to see her as a young woman. And that's what she's doing, right? Like she she could stay in this comfortable place, but she wants something big. Like she wants a big life, but she mm. lives in a world that doesn't give women a big life. And she's trying to figure that out, right? And so my final, final thought that's going on too long here is just th- that, that I, I love about her, that she's like, I want to have this life and I'm going to try to pursue it, but I'm going to do it within the limitations and do my duty. And I mm. we just already are seeing that in her.
0: Mm. Well said. Karen, anything else you want to add?
1: I, I don't want to follow that. That's a good
2: <laughs> note to close on.
0: <laughs> All right. Well then with that, for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.